0: Well, it's interesting, I, I'm, always, I'm always amazed at God's word every week, uh, and this week, there was a, a number of commentaries, not, not the ones, thankfully, that are in my shelf, but they spoke of others who, they speak of this next passage that we're going to look at this morning as out of place, and, um, and so it must have come from a different source, it's called source criticism, lots of stuff out there like this. And, and so it just doesn't fit here, so obviously it must not belong here actually. It wasn't there, it was a different source. And, and then as we begin to study this morning, we're going to just see how, how foolish that is. Um, and how perfect is the wisdom of God. So, so to set up the, the context for this, in John chapter 15... We're at the night of Jesus' betrayal. This, this, this upper room discourse goes on for so long, especially as we take little portions of it, that we can tend to forget where Jesus is and where he's heading and what's, what's coming in the, next, in the next hour, hours. The, the soldiers will be arriving in the garden to take him away, ultimately, to the cross. So that's always the, the context. So Jesus has been speaking to his disciples about bearing fruit. And he, uh, he is the true vine. We are the branches. And every branch in him that bears fruit, the father ta- that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he cleans it so it can bear more fruit. So there's a lot about bearing fruit here. Two weeks ago, we looked more specifically not at fruit-bearing in general, but at the fact that Jesus chose these 11 disciples and appointed them to go and do what? Bear fruit. That was their task. And they were to bear fruit by preaching in all the world all the things that they had heard from Jesus. So Jesus says, All things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And you, you could say, okay, well, that's, that's great. But when Jesus says that, he, he's assuming that, that you automatically get, oh, you've made known to be everything that you heard from your father. Uh, you know, you might want to say, I don't know if I wanted you to make known everything in the sense that that now brings an accountability, a stewardship, a responsibility. And so all that fullness of revelation that has come in Jesus, that Jesus now has entrusted as, like, as a deposit to these disciples, is the mandate for their mission in the world. You, you don't get that much information, that much revelation and blessing, without now having a mandate to go on a mission in the world and bear fruit. That's just the way it goes. So the disciples have been given a stewardship. This stewardship involves not just preaching and teaching and making more disciples, But it also involves loving one another. Because remember we saw that by loving one another, we are, our very lives become an announcement of the redemptive historical summing up of everything in Jesus. So when we actually love one another, our lives are that that announcement, that proclamation of what God has done in Christ. Now there can be no doubt Now, I'm setting this up because this is, we have to get this to get to our text this morning. So remember these things. There can be no doubt about the fruit these disciples are going to bear. You know, Jesus says, go and bear fruit. And the disciples are not, they should not sit there thinking, well, I wonder if we will end up being successful in this. I wonder if we will bear fruit. No, because what did Jesus say? I chose you that you should go and, and appointed you that you go and bear fruit. So if the disciples had said, I like Jesus, I'm going to go attach myself to him because that's my decision. There'd be quite a bit of doubt about whether they would bear fruit. But because it wasn't the disciples that chose Jesus, but Jesus that chose them, there can be no doubt about the fruit bearing. Um, He also appointed them, remember, that they should receive whatever they ask the Father in his name. So they have all sorts of reasons for optimism. There can be no doubt about how lasting and how permanent their fruit is gonna be. He said, I have chosen you to bear fruit and that your fruit should abide and remain forever. Man, this is sounding really good. This is sounding optimistic, right? Because again, it's not they who chose Jesus, but Jesus chose them and appointed them that they should do this. Now on the one hand, we saw how these things apply exclusively to those 11 disciples who were with Jesus. Remember, We said, we can't just take it all to us. It's uniquely to them. But on the other hand, there is a broader sense in which it does apply to us. And so brothers and sisters, just remember, even though we're not apostles, we have still been given this awesome privilege of knowing, knowing the gospel. Of just knowing it. You know it. There's people that don't. That brings with it responsibility. Responsibility. That is, by default, accountability. Paul said to Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And by guarding, that doesn't mean guard it, and don't let anyone else in, don't let anyone else see it, don't let anyone else hear. How do we guard the deposit? By proclaiming it in its purity, in its, in its truth. So we have, we have a stewardship. We've been entrusted with the all things, not just some things, not like Abraham. Abraham got some things, Moses, later on, got more things, but not all things. Uh, David and the prophets got more and more and more. How much have we got? We got all things, all things. So I've often, I've I've, I've said to someone recently, "Don't uh, don't be envying Abraham or Moses or David. They've got nothing on us, right? By God's grace, not because of who we are. So we've had all things made known to us, now we have, because of this fullness of revelation, is stewardship so that we too have been appointed to go. Now, again, we're not apostles. We're not called to do what the apostles did in the full sense. But we have been called to go and bear much fruit. How much fruit? Much fruit. Not little piddly amounts of fruit. Not just enough fruit to skate by. We've been called to bear much fruit. Wherever God has placed us, Now, again, I I, I hesitate with that because sometimes we can use that as our excuse. Well, God has placed me here not doing much, (laughs) right? And that's not the way we're supposed to look at this. But on the other hand, we can also um, realize that wherever God has placed us, there are opportunities for much fruit bearing. We don't have to look somewhere else. There are opportunities where we are. And then each of us, according to the measure of faith and grace that God has assigned to us, And measure, remember, essentially communicates the kind of faith that God has assigned to us, the kind of grace. And again, that's not an excuse for laziness. It's a call to recognize uh, how God has equipped me to bear fruit by his spirit living within and that our fruit should abide forever. Now I've certainly, well, and that whatever we ask of the Father in Jesus' name, he would give it to us. So now this brings us to a question, and this is why those commentators are so wrong. I don't know how they missed this, but it brings us to this question, and and something that can be, for us, a very difficult tension. If Jesus has chosen and appointed these 11 disciples to go and bear much fruit in the world, and does this mean if you're the disciples listening to Jesus, that they can look forward to being embraced and welcomed by the world. See? It's Jesus saying, I have appointed you, I have chosen you to go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should last forever and ever and ever. Yay! Yes! Wonderful! As Jesus goes to the cross. As Jesus goes to the cross. If I'm the disciples, I think I have to be begin thinking that, hey, this sounds good. I look forward to unmitigated success, right? Being embraced and welcomed by the world. And we could, if there's no doubt, and there is no doubt, about the lasting permanent fruit they're gonna bear, does that mean they can look forward to a life of constant success? And I, I use success in quotation marks because yes, at one level, they can look forward to constant success. But success by what what standard? So Jesus answers this question and this is why we desperately need these verses right here in this spot that they are not out of place. He answers this question in beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, where did did that come from? Know that it has hated me first with respect to you. When Jesus says, if the world hates you, if, he doesn't mean that it's possible the world won't hate you. If anything, the Greek actually, we won't get technical, but the, the way the construction is in the Greek, it actually means that this, this hatred is, is assumed and guaranteed. It's gonna happen. So the reason Jesus says if, why then does he say if? It's because, He wants to emphasize the connection with then. In other words, it's like this. Yes, the world will hate you. I I don't know. Again, we don't like to hear that. If you get, we're used to hearing it maybe. We've read the Gospel of John before. But that's uncomfortable. Jesus is just laying it out there. The world will hate you. But then he, and that's the assumption of the Greek construction. But then he says, but if that is so, you see, so yes, the world will hate you, that's assumed. But if that's so, and it is, of course, but if that's so, then know that the world has hated me first with respect to you. No know could be a simple statement of fact. Again, in the Greek, there's different things. It, it could be just, then you know. That the world hated you, for me first. Um, but it could also be an imperative. In other words, Jesus says to us, "Know this. You must know this. Make sure that you know this." So OK, well, but what's the big deal about this? I believe it's an imperative. I believe that he's saying it's important that we know this by all means. But why is it important that we know this? How does this in your handout help us when the world is hating us? So you'll notice the maybe seemingly unusual translation I've chosen. The world has hated me, Jesus says, first with respect to you. Now literally, in the Greek it's just this. The world has hated me first of you. The world has hated me first of you. What does that mean? Is this first with respect to sequence and timing, like first, second, third, fourth, and in time? So it hated me first before you. I, I almost, and obviously Jesus isn't doing this, but I almost think of us of, of as children when we say, me first, right? Me first before you. So, Jesus wouldn't be doing it that way, but is that the meaning of what he's saying? If the world hated you, it hated me first before you. Or is this first with respect to ranking and emphasis? In other words, it has hated me first more than you. First, it has hated me first of all, in your handout. Or maybe both. Now, the reason I'm going to take a moment on this is because all of your translations, whether they say first, but they don't put first of you, they just say first. The NIV just says first and takes out the Greek where it says of, 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 um, of you. Uh, or uh, many translations say before it hated me, before it hated you. Um, most of the commentaries tend to that direction. So I, I just want to tell you why I, I, I'm not going that direction and, and you can decide for yourself. Um, it's really not complicated in terms of being able to make the, whatever decision you want to. But um, I don't think it's Jesus' main point. First of all, for Jesus simply to say, the world hated me first before it hated you, doesn 't communicate much on its own, okay um, but there are two other Greek words that mean before, and it 's plain and simple. If you want to say before, you can say before, and they're obvious words they 're easy words they use all over in the Bible they use all over in John and John did not use that word in fact, he used this expression, which my next point is is very strange it 's very very unusual. John uses it only twice in, in his gospel. And, and so to say, to use this expression simply to mean before is not, not likely as I see it. It's rather awkward. Third, and this is maybe the most important for us to grasp, if the main point was just chronological order, me first before you, we would have expected what we call an aorist verb It's just a verb that's talking about past tense, essentially. It's more complicated than that, but know that the world, we would translate like this. Know that the world hated me first before you, but instead what we have is a perfect tense verb. You don't have to remember that, but this is the way we translate it. Instead of know that the world hated me first, we say know that the world has hated me and the, the idea there is that we have a completed, settled, decided, permanent action that continues into the present. So the implication of that verb is that the world must still hate Jesus first with respect to who? To us. You see that? So when you put together the fact that there were other words for before, the fact that first of you is very strange way of talking and third, that there's a perfect verb, not an aorist tense verb, which emphasizes this settled uh, perfection of, just, of always, always constantly hating Jesus first of us. The implication then I think is clear. But there is one other thing I'll just mention briefly. The emphasis is on the contrast Not so much on, uh, there is first, but on the contrast between me and you. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me first with respect to you. Me, you. Okay? Okay? Jesus said, you gotta know this. So I'm convinced then that Jesus is saying this. After all that, it's this. Yes, the world will hate you. But if that's so, then know that the hatred of the world was given and still is given and will always be given first of all both chronologically certainly that, that's true but, but also categorically to me Now, I, I, what does that do to you? how does it, how do you respond to that? how does it help you deal with the world hating you? Jesus says to, you, to us, it is not you, let's just make it clear, it's not you, not you that the world hates ultimately and finally, but it is me, not you, but me. And of course, that's because we are not ourselves the light that has come into the world, right? We are not the light that came into the world. But why is it important for us to know this? How does this help us when the world is hating us? I'm hoping you've already been going there in your heads. Maybe you've already been seeing it. But think about it like this. If the world's hatred was really directed ultimately and finally against you, like you were the privileged object of the world's most extreme hatred, the world hated no one more than you. Uh, In the same way that the world's hatred is directed against Jesus, this would be, as it were, an honor too great for us. It would be a, it would be a cross and a burden too great for us to bear. And, and that becomes evident when we forget that the world hates Jesus first of us. It does become a cross and a burden too great for us to bear. When we forget the world hated Jesus first, we'll always take the world's hatred in your hand out personally as an offense against our own pride and a trespassing of our own rights and so as a result we'll always respond to the world's hatred with agitation agitation was the word that best summed up the feelings that I sometimes identify in me or we could use the word angst. And then even anger and resentment. But as soon as I understand truly that the world hates Jesus, first with respect to me. I gotta get him and me, right? Then we can be freed actually to rejoice when we are considered worthy as the disciples did to suffer shame for his name. I'm not suffer, suffering shame for my name, I suffer shame for his name. And so, there's a whole different way of looking at it. As soon as we understand that the world hates Jesus first with respect to us, then we can be freed to love our enemies because they're not primarily our enemies even to pray for those who persecute us because Jesus loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So when Jesus says, go bear fruit, but then it's like Jesus knows his disciples are going to be confronted with a lot of hatred and a lot of persecution. And so he tells them ahead of time, if the world hates you, and it will, know this. It has hated me first. Always first. With respect to you. Now think about this too, how easy it is to be not only filled with agitation leading to anger, leading to resentment, but also filled with fear and trembling and despair or just a sense of, of paralysis almost when the world hates and persecutes and comes after us as followers of Jesus. But as soon as we understand truly that the world always hates Jesus first with respect to us, then we should be able to be confident and full of hope because here's why. This Jesus that the world hates, first of all, is the one who's already been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. Who does the world hate? The one sitting at God's right hand, ruling and throned and coming again. So it was the already risen and ascended Jesus, already risen and ascended, who said to Saul, as he's on his way, breathing threats and murder against the disciples, what does he say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Not primarily the disciples. So if the world hates us, let's remember, that hatred is always given first to our Lord Jesus, who is now our risen and triumphant Lord. Knowing this is essential, not just to surviving the world's hatred, okay? Um, And in a sense, here we are. We're not being hated at this moment. We're not experiencing it at this moment. We can read the paper, read the news and see that we are hated, but maybe we haven't experienced it so personally. But Jesus would prepare us, brothers and sisters, The world always hates God's children. But there are times when that breaks out and Jesus here is saying to his disciples, you haven't felt it very much yet, but I want you to be prepared and ready and this is the way, know this. So it's the key, not only to being able to survive the world's hatred, because we gotta survive it in the first place, but more than survive it, be able to respond to the world's hatred rightly, not hating in return. That's why I believe Jesus says in the imperative, no. you must know, make sure you know this. Now, so far we've been emphasizing this distinction between the world's hatred for us and the world's hatred for Jesus. Don't confuse the two, right? But, and so the world does not hate us first. The world does hate Jesus first. But if this distinction Is a distinction. It also assumes there's a connection, right? It's the world's hatred, first of all, for Jesus, that guarantees the world's hatred. In the second place, it is a derived hatred for us. So Jesus continues in verse 19, and I'm glad. I'm so grateful he does, Um, because at the end of the day. Even if the world hates Jesus first, and that does a lot to clarify our thinking, it's still, it's still not nice to be hated. We don't like it. And, and we're not just talking about hated as people personally can't stand, stand us. No, we're talking about objectively persecuting, despising, rejecting and so Jesus says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, right? Now, do we want to be loved by the world? Do, do, we, do we not like being hated? Would we rather be loved? So Jesus says, but because, here's, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. On account of this, the world hates you. It's like Jesus is saying, okay, I know it's not fun to be hated, but remember why you're hated and that'll make everything better, <laughs> right? Notice the emphasis Jesus puts on why in your handout, why the world hates us, because he uses these expressions because we are not of the world, but Jesus chose us out of the world, and then hears it again, on account of this, Jesus already said because, but now he says again, on account of this, the world hates you. When the world hates and rejects us then we must remember that this is because Jesus has loved and chosen us. We can get all worked up. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I, when you're faced with a really tough choice and you feel like you can't decide I don't know if I can get this right. But finally I'll think to myself, well what if I made that choice? See, I'm, I, I'm, I'm struggling with this one and I can't just come to it yet. So then I think, well, let's make that choice. And I know I can't. So that leaves that one. Right? That's kind of sometimes some of my decision making. Um, And you realize, okay, well, then that is the way to go. And I think that's one of the things here Jesus is doing is he's saying, are you struggling with wanting to be loved by the world? Well, remember, the reason you're hated is because I loved you. What does that mean now we can do? We can rejoice in the world's hatred. Therefore, we can rejoice in the hatred of the world insofar as this hatred is the sign we've been loved and chosen by Jesus. So when the world hates us, I look at that and I'm like, ah, oh, Jesus loves me. Right? Because the world wouldn't hate me if Jesus hadn't loved me and chosen me out of the world. And so now, all the world's hatred that it pours out on God's people is their is there, is there springboard to rejoicing that they have been loved by jesus the world's rejection is our reminder we've been chosen by jesus so why do we get so worked up about being rejected and hated by the world in fact perhaps we could say that to resent the world's hatred is ultimately to devalue the love of jesus Jesus says not simply that he's chosen us, but that he has chosen us out of the world. And I think that's interesting. He could have said, you know, um, the world hates you because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you. And he says, no, but I have chosen you out of the world. And so the implication of that that word is one of, of rescue and deliverance. So when the world hates us and persecutes us, what do we need to remember? Well, that world that's hating me is in the power of the evil one. It's passing away. And it's from out of that world that Jesus has chosen and rescued me. So what happens whenever the world hates us? What do we do? We see in that hatred the sign of our salvation. Because if the world loved us, we would that would mean we're still in the world, headed to the same destruction the world is headed. The fact that the world hates us is the glorious sign that we have been saved and delivered and therefore we rejoice in the world's hatred in so far as that hatred is the sign of our salvation. Maybe we could again say it like this. To resent the world's hatred is ultimately to devalue our deliverance from that world. When we know that the world has hated Jesus first, with respect to us, verse 18, when we know why it is that the world hates us, verse 19, then we'll be enabled, not just to survive the world's hatred, but even to rejoice when the world hates us. And then to forgive and pray, For the world that hates us. Notice how Jesus says now very clearly, On account of this, the world hates you. Not He doesn't say the world will likely hate you, the world may possibly hate you. He says, On account of this, the world, as a matter of fact, hates you. You are hated, brothers and sisters. You are hated. To be of the world, what does it mean? What does it mean to be of the world? It means to think the way the world thinks. It means to share the world's priorities, to value the things the world values, uh, to pursue the things the world pursues, to worship the things the world worships. Uh, everything's inverted for the Christian the world has it like this the Christian has it like this There's, but Jesus because he has chosen us out of the world therefore there is now a fundamental opposition and, and again that's why I did this it was, the world is this we're this so this is not just some um, uh, well, I just can't, can't think of the word but uh, nuanced differences that you kind of got to tweak out no, this is a fundamental opposition between how we think, how the world thinks, between our priorities and the world's priorities, our, the things that you value and the things the world values. What, what are the things you pursue with your life and the things the world pursues between the God you worship and the gods the world worships? Are these things that are true of, of us? And this isn't just, again, about loving differences of opinion. Well, that's the world and this is me. Or even just, well, that's, let's, let's, I'll talk to the world say, we'll just agree to disagree about who's right and who's wrong. This is about a moral judgment in your handout. A moral judgment of the world's thinking, priorities, values, pursuits, and God's. And so, basically, our, our being called out of the world <clears throat> has created a people who are now, our very existence is a judgment of the world. We don't have to be judgmental. We don't have to go preaching hellfire and brimstone all the time to be a judgment of the world. So, in your, so it's, a very, it's our existence. As people have been chosen out of the world, That is a constant threat, warning, reminder of impending judgment to those who remain in the world. How can it be any other way? How could it not be that way, right? Jesus said in chapter 3, chapter 7, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. Then, then he says in chapter seven, "The world cannot hate you," he says to his unbelieving brothers, "but it hates me because I bear witness about it that its deeds are evil." Are you beginning to feel like like we're a different group of people in the world? We're not in the world. We're not of the world. We are in the world. We're not of the world. But when we understand these things, no, we are not ourselves the light that has come into the world. But insofar as that light is shining in us and through us, right, we need to know we'll always be hated by the world. It, it begs the question of: Is our light shining? It begs the question of: Are, are we in the mentality of how much comfortable in and with the world can I be, or are we looking at this dichotomy between the world that hates Jesus? and that therefore hates those who follow him. When we see this, when we know this, we can rejoice in the hatred of the world, insofar as this hatred is the sign of our deliverance from bondage and slavery to sin. So, in other words, the world hates us for various reasons, But when the world hates me, I can be rejoiced that that must mean I'm not in the world anymore, headed to destruction. When the world hates me, I can also rejoice because that must mean that I'm walking in the light. That God has freed me to live righteously. So maybe we could say it like this. To resent the world's hatred is ultimately to devalue the miracle that I am free to live righteously. We who were formerly slaves of corruption. certainly we don't go out longing to be hated (laughs) uh, in one sense. But in another sense, yeah. Do these things mean, though, that the true disciple of Jesus will always be suffering persecution, that our unbelieving neighbors, the people who live next door to you in your neighborhood, are always going to personally hate you? Do these things mean, in other words, that there's no hope for bearing fruit in the world, right? So before we were maybe like, the, the disciples might have been too optimistic. Now all of a sudden, we're maybe gonna be too pessimistic because if this is the way things are, let's just all grit our teeth and hunker down and wait till the end, right? If we ourselves though, brothers and sisters, look at this. If we ourselves were once of the world, But now, Jesus says, we're no longer of the world because he chose us out of the world. What does that mean? There are still others that Jesus has chosen who are still waiting to be rescued from out of the world. And so there's this tension now between the world that hates Jesus, and so it hates us, and the same world that is still the arena for, or the the theater for, The display of God's saving power and love. What kind of God do we serve? An all-powerful, sovereign, miracle-working, saving God. So, let's put it this way, on the one hand. Insofar as the world is given over by God to be the world. And we see that around us. We see that happening in our culture. God, there's the restraining influence, there's the giving over uh, thing. And God does each according to his sovereign good pleasure. So we're seeing a lot in our day in our specific context of the world being given over to be what it is. The world. Insofar as that's happening then we who have been chosen out of the world will always be knowing the world's hatred and suffering the world's persecution. But insofar as God's what we call it common grace has a restraining and salutary effect, beneficial, good effect on the world, then the people who belong to this world may still be won by the testimony of our lives. Fruit bearing. On the one hand, we, we could respond to the promise of fruit bearing and answered prayer and whatever we ask the Father will give us with a misguided optimism or triumphalism. And we see Christians like this. They're so full of optimism that, it, that they've missed the reality. They're, they're in for a bad awakening or they're, gonna, um, or they're going to water down the message because they think, well, it should be wonderful. So if I'm not being loved by the world, my message must be too stringent. Right? So there's this misguided optimism or triumphalism that leaves us surprised and overwhelmed when we find we're hated and persecuted by the world. On the other hand, we could respond to the world's hatred and persecution with a misguided pessimism and defeatism that causes us to forget that we have been chosen and appointed in a different way than the apostles, but still chosen and appointed to go and bear much fruit in the world, fruit that abides forever. Fruit bearing and persecution, love and hatred, always must be held in tension in your handout together. And it's only when we do that, that we will that we won't grow weary and lose heart, that we will be enabled to survive and actually thrive in our calling and mission. Jesus continues then in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So in chapter 13, Jesus used that saying, a slave is not greater than his master. And he was saying that to his disciples to help them understand, you can never be above making yourself a slave to one another because I, your master, made myself a slave to you. So now Jesus uses the same idea to help his disciples understand they can never be in your handout above suffering the hatred and persecution of the world. Why? Because their own master has suffered that hatred and persecution supremely. In other words, to think that we could be exempt from receiving the same treatment Jesus received, as though any of us have any automatic exemption from that, is to forget what a slave is. And to forget whose Slave, we are. To think we could be exempt from receiving the same treatment Jesus received is to exalt ourselves over Jesus. So, how we respond to the world's hatred is always a measure of our humility. The measure of my agitation when I'm hated by the world is a measure of my humility or pride. As a slave of the one who suffered for us when we were his enemies, right? And hostile to him when we were the ones hating Jesus. He suffered for us. A slave is not greater than his master, therefore we must not be surprised when we are treated no better than our master was treated we must not expect, and I, I believe this is the point, although I wouldn't be as strong on this, but I think Jesus' point is, if the, world, if the world kept my word, and it didn't, it'll keep yours. Don't expect them to receive you and your word more favorably than it received me and, and my word. Can we see then the freedom that comes in your handout? The freedom. When we embrace our status as slaves of Jesus, slaves that he has called, as we saw a couple weeks ago, his friends. Here's what happens when we do that. Number one, we won't be surprised when the world hates and persecutes us. And one of the most deadly things for the Christian is surprise. One of the most deadly things for the Christian is being caught off guard. Jesus is going to make this point Further next week, we'll see that he says, I've said these things so that when it happens, you will remember I said this to you. Now we know that it's been said, but we don't take it seriously half the time. And so we need to make sure that we're not surprised. Number two, we won't feel like failures when the world rejects our testimony. I think that's why Jesus said that. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they kept my word, they'll keep your word. In other words... Don't feel like a failure when you get the same treatment I got. When you meet with the same levels of success that I met with. But third, then we'll be compelled to put all our trust not in our own abilities. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? But only in the sovereign power of Jesus to choose people out of the world even as he chose me out of the world. Fruit-bearing is not about me doing stuff in my own human effort and striving. Fruit-bearing is about God doing his work in and through us as he wills and as we pray and he answers our prayers for his glory. In other words, rather than cause us to be pessimistic, about the chances for bearing much fruit fruit that abides forever the apparent hopelessness of our situation should instead cause us to be confident and full of hope as we fix our eyes only on the power of God who gives us all that we ask for in Jesus name Jesus said in verse 5 we can do nothing apart from him I'm reminded of these verses in chapter 1 now um, yeah, so listen to these, verses 10 to 11. He was in the world, Jesus was, the light was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So you read that, of course the world did not receive him, the world's the world. right? The world hates Jesus. So it would seem from these verses by themselves, that Jesus' ministry was a failure. You read those verses, and what are you left with? Failure. And yet, miraculously, and from the human perspective, completely unexpectedly, the very next words are these. But, as many as received him. You're like, who are they? Where do these people come from? Yes! the God's sovereign power and love and his saving activity in the world. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus says to his disciples, remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, which they didn't, they will also keep yours, They will keep yours also, and so they won't. And yet, paradoxically, grasping that reality leads us not to pessimism, but to the only true kind of optimism. Fruit bearing and persecution, love and hatred, must always be held in tension together. Now I say tension because This whole reality is the way it is because we've been chosen out of the world and yet we're still living in the midst of the world. So we got this thing going on. But see how Jesus uses this tension to actually encourage you and strengthen you and equip you in your mission of bearing fruit. Being hated by the world, he he turns the hatred of the world actually into a a strengthening and motivating factor in your mission to the world. It goes like this. If the world hates us, we know it is hated and that it still hates Jesus, first of all, with respect to us. And so, therefore, knowing that, meditating on that, grasping that, we can love and forgive the world that hates and persecutes us, even as Jesus loves and forgives. But we've got to get that first. Second, we can even rejoice. Not only can we love and forgive, we can rejoice in the hatred and rejection of the world insofar as that hatred is the sign. It is. That hatred is itself a big flashing sign that says, Jesus loves you and has chosen you. We can rejoice in the hatred of the world insofar as that hatred is a flashing sign announcing that you have been saved from out of the world and its coming destruction. We can rejoice in the hatred of the world insofar as it is a sign of my deliverance from the bondage and slavery to sin. Therefore, if we can see all of that, do you see now? We can see in the world that hates us the arena of God's saving power and love. Far from giving up and going home, We get up and go out and bear fruit where God has placed us. Therefore we can see in the world that hates us we who were once part of that world the arena for the bearing of much fruit. Fruit that will abide forever. So it's in the context and I put like five arrows pointing to that word and circled it and It is in this context of our appointment to go and bear much fruit, more arrows and more circles. It's in that context. And you've got to remember that because otherwise we're going to end on a really downer of a note. It's in that context of bearing much fruit in the world that Jesus says to us even as he says to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me first of you. If you were of the world, yes, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, on account of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word they'll keep yours also dear Heavenly Father Lord I pray that that through through the preaching of your word you will bring forth fruit Lord we pray that that we will not be surprised when the world hates us but to the contrary we will rejoice insofar as that hatred is to us nothing more, nothing less than the sign that Jesus has loved and chosen us. That we have been saved and delivered from the wrath to come. And that that hatred is itself the sign that we also have been set free to live righteously where, where before we were slaves of corruption. What What, what, what else could we expect but hatred and how we ought to rejoice in that fact that we are now in that place where we are hated by the world. And yet, Lord, we also know that as we see these things, and as we remember that the world has hated you, first, always, first before and us, first with respect to us, um, Lord, may we, may we be enabled to then love the world and forgive the world that hates us even as you did. And may we then also see in the world to which we once belonged, each one of us, the arena of, of your saving work. So Lord, may we, each one of us, go. May we, each one of us, bear much fruit for your glory and for your honor. We pray this and. And we ask it for the sake of your name and for the joy of your people and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.